Welcome to the first installment of this summer's Seminars at Steamboat, lectures on important public policy issues from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The following seminar, Teaching Democracy, Civics and Civility in the Classroom and Beyond, features Deval Patrick, who is the former governor of Massachusetts and served under President Bill Clinton as the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. The seminar is introduced by former Seminars at Steamboat Board Chair Bob Stein, and it was recorded on July 12, 2021. Hello and welcome to the first seminar of 2021. We're a divided country politically with responses to the COVID epidemic and race or among the areas in which there are stark divisions in our country. How we teach democracy and how we converse with those who disagree with us says a great deal about who we are as a country and what we may become in the future. Yet, I believe that there are many areas in which we can find agreement. How to identify those areas and how to find ways to agree and work together for a better, more inclusive America is our challenge. Governor Deval Patrick is the perfect person to help us better understand the issues we face and describe strategies that may help us get through them. He's been an assistant attorney general for civil rights, governor of the state uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, he is now a senior advisor and board member at Bain Capital and is the founder and chairman of the Together Fund, which supports grassroots groups working to drive turnout and engagement among disenfranchised and marginalized voters. As Joella said, there will be questions after uh, Governor Patrick finishes his remarks. Uh, and below the screen that you're watching on is a chat box. And we'll attempt to get to as many questions as time will permit. I am honored to welcome to seminars at Steamboat lamentably, only virtually, <laughs> Governor Deval Patrick. Bob, thank you so much for that very, very warm welcome. And uh, thanks to Joella and the board for inviting me. Uh, maybe if this, if this goes okay this evening, you'll, you'll ask me to join you in the flesh one day when circumstances permit. Uh, until then, thank you to everyone for joining virtually this evening. I'm going to keep my remarks brief so we can spend most of our time in conversation. That's more fun for me, and I learn much more, and I hope to be more engaging for you as well. Uh, months ago, Bob Stein and I agreed that the topic for my remarks this evening would be teaching democracy, civics, and civil civility in the classroom and beyond. Since then, as debates have escalated over critical race theory and just what constitutes scholarship sufficient to merit university tenure, it feels harder to know quite what to say about any academic content, maybe especially about democracy. When leaders use division as a political tool, downplay a deadly assault on the Capitol to overturn an election and make it harder for people to vote on the strength of a big lie, and when the Congress and the Supreme Court refuse to serve as either a check or a balance, I wonder, perhaps like some of you, how anybody can know quite what to teach. American democracy, the supposed model 
of the form seems up for grabs. The failure to support some of these processes of democracy, like ballot access and voting, legislative debate, judicial review, is dangerous enough. What's even more concerning is the underlying failure to support the purposes of democracy. The notion of government of, by, and for the people. The rule of law as superior to the rule of any one personality. Liberty and justice for all. These COVID times made it harder to turn away from the deep disparities among us in health, wealth, and education, or the deep unfairness in too much of our policing, leaving a lot of Americans questioning whether our national commitment to social and economic justice is real. For some of us, well before the pandemic, the self-evident truth that all people deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as one friend puts it, seems a long way from settled in the American mind. It's not just that our civil rights are less secure or that our political rhetoric is more caustic, it's that our moral foundation feels shaky. So I was eager to be here with you this, this evening because there are big questions before our country beyond policy questions, questions about the values that define us, and what better place to reflect on them than with you. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I lived there with my mother, my sister, my grandparents, and various other relatives who came and went in our grandparents' two-bedroom tenement. My mother, sister, and I shared one of those bedrooms and a set of bunk beds, so you'd rotate from the top bunk to the bottom bunk to the floor every third night on the floor. I went to big, broken, overcrowded, under-resourced, sometimes violent public schools. Still, my grandmother would never have us say we were poor. Just broke, she would say, because broke is temporary. A refugee from the Jim Crow South, she still believed in an America where you could lift yourself and your family above your circumstances of birth. Of course, in the 50s and 60s on the south side of Chicago, most folks were from down south and brought Southern ways with them. Southern speech, Southern food, Southern storytelling. Naturally, that included church. For me, that meant regular attendance at the Cosmopolitan Community Church at the end of the block to which my sister and I were sent every Sunday morning, bribed by the promise of homemade biscuits when we got home. Cosmopolitan had in common two things with every black church, the transformative power of music and the presence of old ladies in hats who took the business of worship seriously. For all the things we didn't have on the South Side in those days, one thing we did was a very strong sense of community. That was a time when every child was under the jurisdiction of every adult on the block. If you messed up down the street in front of Ms. Jones, she'd go upside your head as if you were hers and then call home so you got it two times. Those adults taught us that community is about understanding the stake that we have in our neighbors' dreams and struggles, as well as our own. The other lesson I learned, mainly from those old church ladies, was about the importance of having a moral foundation. It was never about sanctimony 
or any sort of moral superiority, just a set of values, of expectations they had of us, and most importantly, that we were expected to have of ourselves about how to behave and how to treat others. Those old ladies used those values as guideposts in everyday life through old-fashioned notions about not leaving your conscience at the church door. They taught us that faith is not just what you say you believe, but how you live. These lessons of community and the importance of core values have stuck with me. They've shaped my life and career choices, and of course, the way I think about policy. See, I'm convinced that before we can fix our policies, whether in job growth or education, in immigration or the justice system or in democracy itself, we have to fix our politics. And I'm not just talking about tone or hyper-partisanship or a willingness to compromise as important as all of that is. I'm talking about more fundamental notions of community that we have a stake in each other and of core values like justice. The notion that beyond the political left and the political right is right and wrong. In other words, fixing our politics revives, requires reviving our purpose. And I think we have more power to do that than we may sometimes think. Uh, a few years ago, in an act of hateful violence, a gunman shot and killed 11 people and wounded seven others while they prayed at Shabbat services at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. He shouted anti-Semitic rants while he fired his gun. Those killed ranged in age from 54 to 97 years old. Because it was then the eve of the 2018 midterms, or maybe just because we are in the times we're in in America, cries went up that the coarseness of our political rhetoric had given rise to this crime. And when we learned that just before the massacre, the shooter had posted on social media that he was about to avenge anti-immigrant misinformation spread by elected officials themselves, many Americans quite understandably asked hard questions about whether sowing seeds of fear and division were more than inflamed rhetorical flourishes, but in fact were bringing a dangerous fringe of society out into the open. The morning after the Pittsburgh shootings, I happened to be at Sunday services at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, of all places. The very place where just a little while before the Pittsburgh massacre, a white supremacist shot and killed nine black worshipers at the end of Bible study. That Sunday morning in Charleston, you could feel the weight not only of Pittsburgh's, but of Mother Emanuel's own tragedy. You could feel the weight of the shooting of the two African-American shoppers in Kentucky a few days before that. You could feel the weight of the unarmed black and brown men and women killed unjustifiably by police, the weight of the children taken from their refugee parents at the southern border the weight of the words and deeds of fear and division that have become the bitter daily diet of our politics and experience. And yet they, they didn't cry out at Mother Emanuel to be delivered by someone somewhere else. 
They didn't appeal to some distant faith. First, they prayed for the comfort of their brothers and sisters in Pittsburgh. And then Pastor Manning, who in the following days would travel to Pittsburgh to pray alongside the rabbi at Tree of Life, he preached a, a common sense truth that words do in fact matter, that we reap what we sow. And then at the altar call, they welcomed. And it's, it's hard quite to capture the impact of the scene, but I, I want you to try to imagine it. Here was a place where one might fairly have expected and indeed have excused a little holding back. After all, that very openness and welcome had recently been fatal among those very people in that very sanctuary. And as the congregants began to come to the altar, black people and white people, I will confess that some of us who were visiting were a little tense, praying with one eye open, you might say, to see if anything or anyone looked a little out of place. But not the pastor, not the deacons, not the choir director, not one of the regular parishioners. Their welcome was generous, unhesitating, and unflinching. They knew that the hate visited on Pittsburgh and on Kentucky and on themselves was but the reaping of what others had sown, but they also knew that if they wanted to reap love instead of hate, justice instead of injustice, it was within them and up to them to sow better seeds, kinder and more loving seeds. They took a chance on living their faith. And some might call it careless or naive. What I saw was greatness, moral greatness, made possible by goodness. There is a connection in here, I think, about uh, and to the American experiment. See, I think the founders, for all their flaws, intended to set this nation on a moral foundation, not in a religious sense so much as in a civic sense. America is an exceptional nation, but not because of economic or military might. Nations of great wealth and arms have come and gone with the winds of time. America is exceptional because we are the only nation in human history organized not by geography or religion or race or language or even a common culture, but instead around a handful of civic ideals. And we've define those ideals over time and through struggle as freedom, equality, opportunity, and fair play. On the promise of those ideals, America has been the hope of the world. In a way, the founders played uh, the role for the nation that those old church ladies played for me. They designed America to be a nation with a conscience. We have struggled with and against that conscience from the start. But the truth is, America cannot be great without also being good. So while it is true that our economy is strong and our military is powerful, while it's true that we have dazzling achievements behind us and extraordinary potential ahead of us, America is yet to be all we were meant to be. See, when we take children from their parents to discourage the parents from seeking sanctuary here, from violence and despair at home, remember that we cannot be great without being good. 
when bullets fly in houses of worship or in schools or in nightclubs or in grocery stores, and our leaders choose the slogans of the gun lobby over the lives of innocents, remember that we cannot be great without being good. When unarmed black and brown citizens are shot down by unaccountable police, when our justice system is not yet consistently just, remember that we cannot be great without being good. And it's not just recent headlines that ought to trouble us. This is one of the revelations for so many Americans of the experience during COVID times. Consider the everyday neglect that has become a part of our routine and even expectation. Here we are in the midst of a knowledge explosion where only the well-prepared and better connected will excel. And yet we continue to let public schools fail poor children. Remember, we cannot be great without being good. When the economy moves on and leaves broken communities and broken lives behind, and the best we offer is either empty slogans or a shrug, remember, we cannot be great without being good. When we can always find a way to afford a weapon system the military doesn't want, but not the health care a young family or a senior needs. Remember, we cannot be great without being good. When we choose a power grab over a fair vote or the wishes of the mighty over the needs of the meek, remember, we cannot be great without being good. Instead of spattering our civic square with mud, instead of fueling extremism and hate, with a 24-7 cycle of outrage, how about we try a little old-fashioned love of country, by which I mean love of what really makes America great. I don't know when patriotism got reduced to lapel pins and flyovers and quarrels about whether pro football players should take a knee. In America, patriotism demands conscience. It demands sacrifice and grace. It demands respect for the values of freedom, equality, opportunity, and fair play, even when it's inconvenient, even when it gets in the way of party politics, even when it compels us to be mindful of and compassionate towards the lowly, the vulnerable, the different, and the despised. This is our civic faith. Patriots have a moral ob obligation to keep that faith. And here's the point, because this is what democracy is for. Sure, we should debate what part government should play in meeting those obligations, but let's not forget in the heat of that debate that government, as Barney Frank used to say, is just the name we give to the things we choose to do together. And that social and economic justice was the point from the start. These are not abstractions for me. That's why I ran for governor in the pl first place and why I approached the work in the ways I did. It's why we invested time, ideas, and money in education, innovation, and infrastructure. And I'm proud to say that's why after eight years, Massachusetts ranked first in the nation in so many areas, from student achievement and healthcare coverage to energy efficiency and job growth coming out of the recession. Lord knows we did not get everything right. Nobody ever does. But I can confidently say that we worked hard to do all the good we could in all the ways we could 
for all the people we could for as long as we could. We tried to invest where policy touches people in ways that advance equality, opportunity, and fair play, because that's what it takes to make people truly free. I want to believe we can still unite around these values. Polls and other reporting, a number of recent articles and books, and frankly, the presence of people in the streets suggests that we are less divided on many of the fundamentals than we seem. I'm encouraged to believe that, and I'll, I'll leave you with uh, just one example why. In my last year in office, America faced a crisis not unlike today's when unaccompanied children, some as young as three and four years old, were flooding across the southern border, having fled over thousands of miles from violence in Central America. Just like now, the federal authorities were overwhelmed. So President Obama asked a number of states temporarily to shelter and care for some of the refugee children until they could be processed under our laws. Now, feelings around immigration ran hot then just as now. Even so, I agreed that our state would help because accepting the challenge to temporarily shelter poor children fleeing unspeakable violence was to me an act of patriotism. America has given sanctuary to desperate children for centuries. We rescued Irish children from famine, Russian and Ukrainian children from religious persecution, Cambodian children from genocide, Haitian children from earthquakes, Sudanese children from civil war, and New Orleans children from Hurricane Katrina. Once in 1939, we turned our backs on Jewish children fleeing the Nazis, and it remains a blight on our national reputation, as I fear the recent separations of children from their parents will surely be remembered. The point is, is that our esteem and our power are enhanced when we rescue desperate children and diminished when we don't. My decision was an act of faith too. I believe one day we will have to answer for our actions and our inactions. My faith teachings are very clear about how we are to treat the least of these. Every major faith tradition on earth charges its followers to treat, treat others as we ourselves wish to be treated. Still, I knew our offer of shelter would be controversial. Indeed, for that decision on hate radio and, and social media, I was called everything but a child of God. A couple of days after I announced my decision on an unusually quiet Saturday morning, my wife, Diane, gave me a list of stuff to get from the local Home Depot. You have to know my wife to know that there is no office high enough to keep you from her honey-do lists. It was early in the day, and I thought I would just run out quickly on my own without bothering the state troopers in my security detail. What harm could come of it? I knew exactly where I was going and where to find everything on my list. So I set off in the official SUV dressed in a t-shirt, jeans and flip-flops, a baseball cap and dark glasses. Didn't matter. I was outed by the manager in the very first aisle. Governor Patrick, he said, welcome to Home Depot. How can I help you? Now, I encountered a man in the checkout line who was angry, not, uh, not hostile or threatening, just angry and loud. He yelled at me about sheltering the children. He said, Governor, I couldn't disagree with you more. 
He said, my own wife is an immigrant. She came here legally, and that's the way it ought to be. I want you to know that I think you were wrong. Now, in that moment, it would not have helped engaging with him over how being a refugee is, in fact, legal under American law. I simply thanked him for his feedback. But you have to know it was clear to everyone in the checkout line and beyond who was mad at whom and what he was mad about. I had six other encounters on the same subject in my short visit in the store that morning. And in each of the other encounters, someone came up and whispered, Governor, I'm with you. Governor, you're doing the right thing. Governor, thank you for helping those kids. The calls to the office were two or three to one in favor of sheltering those children. And it struck me as I reflected on this later, how we've come to whisper kindness and to shout anger. I don't know if that's about the reality TV culture we live in or what, but I do know that it's upside down. It's time we learn to shout kindness, to shout compassion, to shout justice. That's the purpose of American democracy and the source of our greatness. Blessedly, we're starting to see more and more of that across this country, more and more people coming off the sidelines and standing up for America at her generous and optimistic best. From women who are demanding to be treated with the respect and decency everyone deserves, from survivors of domestic violence and abuse demanding to be seen and heard and believed, from the black and brown people who are demanding consistent professionalism and the presumption of innocence from police, from students who are demanding we choose their lives and safety over the proliferation of military weapons in civilian hands, from all those lawyers who showed up at polling places in 2020 after threats of vote suppression or in airports after the Muslim ban demanding respect for the rule of law, Black Lives Matter, Time's Up, Black Girl Magic, Occupy Wall Street, Families Belong Together. At any given time on any given issue, they may make any one of us uncomfortable. But they have taken to the legislatures, to the ballot boxes, to the courtrooms and to the streets to lay claim to their democracy, to its purpose as well as its process and ultimately to affirm the American conscience. They had better keep it up, and the rest of us had better join them so that democracy doesn't end up a subject suitable only for history classes. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Governor. You have set a stage which um, is not overly optimistic, and what I would like to do with to start is ask a question or two about some solutions, um, starting with schools, and that's where civics is taught, if it is. Uh, to what extent does the emphasis in so many schools on STEM 
And I know in Massachusetts, you added arts to science, technology. STEAM, we call it. So you have STEAM, but that still doesn't get to uh, the question of civics, not as history, but as living. Uh, And I assume you think that students are the place to start. So let's start there. What needs to be done on a state or even local level uh, to get beyond where we are now? So there are two, there are two um, responses I would offer you, Bob, um, because I think there are at least two dimensions of the solution. One is the basic structure, how the system is supposed to work, what the expectation uh, is, you know, who gets to vote for whom, which level of government has taken responsibility um, or is assigned responsibility under our constitution, federal and state, uh, for what part of uh, our civic uh, lives. That basic structure is amazing. How often uh, as a candidate, when I'm out, uh, when I was out uh, running for governor, that people would ask me about potholes in their neighborhood. <laughs> you know, I wanted to say, wait a minute, actually that's something the mayor worries about, not the, uh, uh, not the governor. And, and, um, and it takes a bit of patience and uh, and engagement, I think, to be able to respond in a way that isn't off-putting to people who are themselves not already familiar with the uh, with the different um, uh, with the different structures. But I think more to the point of the purposes of democracy and the meaning of it and the connection we have to each other, the sense of community, is service. I think um, one of the reasons, uh, you know, it troubles me that we are as divided as we uh, sometimes seem. Um, What troubles me more is that it's been so easy to divide us. And I think it's easy to to divide us, Bob, because we don't know each other. We get a cartoon version of of one another and we kind of stop at that. And the beauty of service, I believe, is that it gives people an opportunity to come together, um, you know, in, in, uh, in response to some unmet need and work along someone who you don't know from a different region who may come at a similar set of facts in a, similar, in a completely different way. We started a program called Project 351 uh, in Massachusetts. It's now 10 years on strong which brought eighth graders or an eighth, eighth grader nominated by every one of the 351 school districts in the Commonwealth to come together um, uh, in the spirit of uh, service and talk about and do service together and then to go back and be ambassadors uh, of service in their own uh, communities. 10 years on uh, and at, uh, in very short order, we will have touched 1 million lives Uh, And it's created a network of young leaders who understand this notion of servant leadership um, and this notion of community, as I've uh, described. And I think these are a couple of ways in the medium and long term that we should think about repairing our democracy. Uh, A year of service is something which one of our seminar founders, Bell Sawhill, uh, has talked about and uh, that is one thing. Let, let me build a little bit on uh, what you have said, because if I was a seventh or eighth grader in middle school, uh, or if, if I was a high school student, um, this is the Constitution. What should I 
be taught about it in each of those environments? And should it be left up to a state where most educational policy comes from? Is there an overlay? Uh, how can we ensure that this document remains living? Well, first of all, you know, it's worth reading. It's not that long. I mean, there, there are pocket uh, the pocket versions like the one you have. Um, if I were home, I'd pull the one uh, that I have in my uh, in my desk uh, drawer. Um, it is worth reading, and it's it's worth understanding that it is short for a reason, not because um, the the founders were trying to uh, avoid uh, issues, but because they were trying to stake out broad um, foundational principles mindful that they could not see entirely uh, clearly into the future. Um, so I think reading it is uh, important. I think it, um, it's also important to understand the Bill of Rights and why the view was that the Constitution at its uh, once done, um, uh, and after that couple of years of debate and then ratification was viewed as not enough of a governing document and the Bill of Rights, where that came from and why. The question of um, of the separation of powers between the uh, um, uh, and the relegation of uh, of authority between the federal and state government, and where that comes from, you know, states' rights was an argument invented in defense of slavery. And while there is an awful lot of agita today about telling the whole of our history, I actually think the whole of our history is critically important and ultimately, or at least has the promise of being triumphant. But it informs a lot of the tension, a lot of the ways in which we have struggled over, uh, uh, you know, as a, 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 around this idea of American conscience uh, over time. And I think there are lots of opportunities to talk about that and then leave students to kind of work it out and argue among themselves across these differences. And I'll, I know this answer is too long, but I'll give an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about in a slightly related um, setting. Uh, I was a part of, uh, was the founding um, chair of the advisory board for a program called um, Our Generation Speaks, which was an undertaking by a, an Israeli, uh, a former soldier who was a student at Brandeis uh, when I was in office who um, um, was interested in entrepreneurialism. And he wanted to bring together, and we have over the last many years, uh, Israeli and Palestinian uh, young entrepreneurs to come to Boston, spend the summer together uh, in, a, in a, uh, an entrepreneurship or startup competition and got whittled down so that we ultimately ended up with a handful, small handful of new businesses on which there were um, both Israeli and Palestinian entrepreneurs working together. And then those businesses are sent back into the region to launch with a little funding. It's been four or five classes now and has continued to, uh, to flourish. And in many respects, we ask ourselves whether the most important thing to come out of that is the success of the enterprises or the success of the relationships. Why? Because in their downtime, and there was a lot of it, they grappled with some of the questions that they don't get to argue about back home across differences. And they found a way to hear each other. And in that hearing, in that hearing, they built some trust and they built, built some more understanding. And there will come lasting benefits 
for that democratic uh, experiment in that part of the world. And I think there's similar kind of uh, kind of um, benefit can come of that sort of approach here. When you were talking about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, um, which of the bills of right Bill of Rights do you think is most important? Uh, do you like the most, and and which one is really being ignored? Oh gracious, that is so unfair. Um, look, I think there is there is real. Um, It's so important to understand the, the, um, the 14th Amendment and the relationship of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments because they were, in a way, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and the 14th Amendment said, actually, you know, we meant it when we said um, we are not only are uh, our, our uh, uh, former slaves free, but they are citizens with the full rights uh, and uh, and benefits and obligations of um, uh, of citizenship. Uh, again, broadly articulated in the amendment, so that there would be broadly uh, broad application. And we've been fussing about that for a long, long time. Um, I love um, the First Amendment um, rights to. Uh, to speak freely and uh, the right of, um, of um, uh, to petition first and fifth uh, to petition um, government and the right uh, to practice um, one's religion freely. I'm fascinated by the way the freedom of religion has been turned into a spear rather than a shield. In other words, the Bill of Rights was debated as a way to better define the relationship between the state and individuals. And the, um, the freedom of religion in recent cases in the Supreme Court has been advanced as a, as a reason why, um, uh, as a justification by, for why some citizens can um, effectively discriminate against other uh, citizens. And that's a fascinating and I think um, troubling uh, development. So I, I, you know, when I was when I was uh, when I was in office, people would ask me what part of the Commonwealth I loved the most, and I said, I, you know, I'm like a parent; I have to love them all the same. I think as a um, as a lawyer who has practiced in the in the Supreme Court and in um, and in the courts of uh, of appeals, I I have to, and I do love it all the same. But I think you have to see it as the whole and not um, and not just the parts of it. There have been a couple of questions about what can local communities do, whether it's schools, city government, uh, or other entities, uh, to promote civic values, and whether it is in school itself um, or other volunteer activities. And then how do you deal with those states or localities whose concepts really are false narratives who are putting out things which are incorrect, but say that's what is going to be taught in our school. How do you deal with both of those issues? Well, so the, on the, the, first, um, the first issue, I, I, I want to be, um, I want to be sure that we do not underestimate the value of example which is to say um, when, uh, when political 
leaders, when business uh, leaders, when civic um, leaders make a point of participatory democracy by their own actions, by what they do to open up polling places and to make registration convenient and to make um, voting easy and accessible. Um, what they do, not just what they say, but what they do is enormously important. Not every gesture has to be the grand one that makes the news. Um, but when uh, community A um, makes a point of making uh, participation in the democracy, reach out and affirm uh, and, and affirmative, community B next door um, will notice. Um, and there are, I think, um, ways and strategies in which, you know, a governor, for example, could create um, incentives and even friendly competitions among, uh, among uh, local communities to help that sort of, uh, of thing, maybe even at the presidential level. I think we have um, uh, on the second uh, question, sure, there are going to be differences about, um, you know, whether, uh, well, you hear differences in what's taught today, you know, what is this, what is critical race theory and does it or does not, does it not belong um, in, uh, in the curriculum and at what level of, uh, of, uh, of education, just as an example. It's a, it's a frustrating example because I think a whole lot of the people who are wound up and objecting to critical race theory, theory don't share a point of view about what it is. But what is certain to me is that we have to teach all of our history, all of it. It doesn't make us less patriotic. It doesn't make us less, um, uh, you know, shouldn't make us less um, uh, proud. It, it's to me the the genius of the country is that we have these foundational principles, and and we have in fits and starts over our history stepped up. Never soon enough. Never um, uh, uh, sort of permanently enough. But usually from the ground up, we have stepped up. And that's what's so exciting about this moment is that so many people in the, you know, notwithstanding our sort of famously short attention span in this country, seem to have uh, been willing to sort of put their collective foot down and said, we mean it when we say um, liberty and justice uh, for all. And I think back to the first point, Enough of that over a sustained um, uh, period of time without um, sort of giving up on the folks who have a different opinion um, and who may even be um, more than dismissive, but um, well, more than dismissive in, uh, of, of, uh, of that more positive, more forward-looking and more complete account of our, uh, of our history, I think in the end, um, can make a difference. Can we um, take some of the real areas of difference, whether it's a voter suppression controversies over the election, including the last presidential election as to what the outcome was and how can we de-escalate some of the discussion around those issues um, and this is not just for people in schools, but people, uh, to use the phrase in the title of your talk, beyond. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not naive. I understand that um, 
that the big lie persists to drive an agenda. It's not, uh, it's, 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 you know, it, it's, it, it has a life of its own for a reason. Um, the vote suppre voter suppression and vote suppression undertakings in many states are a part of a strategy. And, and I want to be clear, Bob, I'm saying this not, I, I'm, I'm saying this as a Democrat who doesn't think you have to hate Republicans to be a good Democrat. That's not the kind of um, politics I believe in. But it has been true for a long time that um, at the national level, Republican electoral um, strategy has um, included um, jiggering the rules. And that is not limited to making it harder to register and to vote, or for that matter, to stay on the voting rolls once you're uh, registered, like the, you know, the, the, uh, the purging that goes on. It, it involves um, drawing congressional districts so that the party chooses the electorate rather than the electorate choosing the, uh, uh, choosing the candidate. Um, it includes the overemphasis on money uh, so much of it dark. Uh, and there are, you know, you don't have to speculate. This is a matter of record. This is what Republican um, uh, uh, strategists have talked about uh, and have socialized um, over, uh, uh, over time and even how to justify in the face of objection, those, uh, um, uh, those measures. And it's had the impact we see. That's how in Wisconsin, for example, where the, I think in the last uh, election after the midterms there, the vote overall um, favored Democrats 60% in the state uh, uh, legislature. They got 60% of the legislature Republican rather than, um, rather than Democrat overall, because you can draw the lines to create those kinds of uh, outcomes. I say, look, if, if the, let's have a real contest of ideas. Let's have a real um, uh, appeal uh, on the uh, on the strength of the differences in the party's ideas and proposals, and let's put that really to the test. And and uh, there are ways to do that, many of which are made possible by provisions in legislation pending right now um, in the Congress, and it is held up in the Senate because the notion of a fair fight is really really troubling uh, to some of those who. Uh, who are, uh, are driving national Republican strategy today. Well, gerrymandering had its start in your state, if I am correct. Jerry. Uh, Jerry, um, yes. Governor Jerry, uh, that's right. Beyond that, do you think that uh, voting, um, as in some countries, should be a requirement of citizenship? Uh, our uh, percentage is appallingly low. I, you know, look, I would love that. I don't think it'll ever happen here because our concept of freedom um, includes um, the freedom not to do stuff, <laughs> you know, and uh, I wish it were true, but I think there's a whole lot we could do to make it, um, to make it convenient. Um, you know, there are an awful lot of people who um, cannot take the time off from work uh, to uh, to cast a vote. Um, there's a movement led by many businesses to make that a paid time away from uh, from the office or the or the workplace. 
it's a lot easier for bigger businesses than um, than smaller ones, but that is again a power, some power of the uh, example. We could make it a lot easier to register to vote, you know, automatic registration when you turn 18, uh, for example, which is a proposal in many uh, in many places is a, a great idea. I happen to think that the example of some of the northwestern states with mail-in voting um, is has been very, very positive with hardly any evidence of, uh, of, uh, of fraud. Why not do that in more, uh, in more places? Um, uh, I think similarly, you know, the idea of longer polling uh, hours on election day or, um, or early voting, which has been um, uh, tried in, in, in many places, especially during the um, pandemic, enormously important. And look, it's true that in the 2020 presidential election, uh, the Republican incumbent got the highest vote in the history of, um, uh, of voting. There were more people who showed up to vote. He didn't win the popular vote, but there were more of his voters, is what I'm trying to say, um, who, uh, who showed up. That's good. That's good. Why then try to figure out ways to make it harder for people to vote that just happen to have a history, in the case of the tools being used, of disadvantaging um, uh, poorer voters, rural um, uh, voters, black and brown uh, voters? Let's have a let's have a fair contest of ideas. I feel pretty confident we'll do okay, but I think everybody would feel more confident in our democracy if we went more in that direction. We, we have now during COVID in many communities uh, trying to encourage vaccination have uh, provided various kinds of incentives, cash, tickets, et cetera. Only should, in America, only voting? in America. <laughs> yeah, should we do that with voting or is it that really a false equivalent? No, I, 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 I don't, I don't even like it in the case of vaccines to tell you the truth, but um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think I have to have an opinion on everything in the case of voting. No, I think if we make it um, look, apart from the, the mechanisms um, to uh, uh, available to register and vote, some of which I've talked about already, the purpose or the or the meaningfulness of uh, of voting remains a challenge. You know, I talk to folks all the time in my own race and in the um, in the campaigns of uh, candidates I've supported, who have asked the question, "Why bother?" It was the sort of thing that was on my mind when I would tell my team when they had a when I was in office and uh, we were talking about policy uh, ideas, I, I said, you know, you need to understand, I'm not that interested in policy in the abstract. I'm interested in policy where it actually touches people. So if there's a good idea, you tell me how it improves somebody's life. How does it help somebody help themselves? And in the absence of that, I'm just not, I'm just not interested. Um, and the, the, per the reason for that um, uh, sort of guardrail on how we thought about um, policy, and I wanted my my team to think about policy, is that I, I I'm aware of how disconnected people feel from their government, and of course we've had a long time uh, of rhetoric about how government is the problem. It's it's 
as if it's some them over there when government is us, it's you and me, right? And it ought to reflect the best of who we are and the best of, uh, of our um, aspirations. And it ought to feel more proximate um, to, uh, uh, to people in their lives. And I think that is one of the reasons why it is so important um, that um, candidates and aspirants uh, to office try to make the connection between what it is they are running for and want to do in that office and how it's actually gonna to touch um, uh, people and help them uh, meet their needs and help them help themselves. So there's two parts here. Um, one is about the mechanisms, but the other about um, uh, how important it is again for us to engage, not in the choice simply of who is the better sort of political performance artist. Um, but who actually understands the um, importance of delivering on the policy proposals and why they matter uh, in individual uh, uh, lives and in individual communities. In order to get to that stage, do you think that there may be a role to teach civics to uh, potential members of Congress or state mm. legislatures uh, before they take office and then reinforce it after they do take office. You know what somebody said? I remember I had a question like that. I remember the first time I was running and, um, and someone else in the, uh, in, the, in the crowd or in the, in the group that day said, you know, once people are elected, you can't tell them anything. So I'm, I'm reminded of that when you ask the, um, when you ask the question. Look, I, I want to be careful not to leave the impression that I think people who serve in government don't get it, don't understand the, the, uh, the mechanisms and the, and the purpose of uh, democracy. Many, many do and are focused on that. And many, many others um, are, you know, see it as a, as a um, it's just a game, it's a sport. And it's about power, not, uh, uh, not principle. I'm not, you know, we've been talking in very broad uh, terms. I've been talking in very broad terms. I'm not naive. I totally understand um, that you have to have power before you can exercise it. Um, and if I want outcomes um, of, uh, of a substantive kind, then I've got to get, um, get power. What I'm objecting to is this notion of power at any cost, um, that there are some guiding principles that make us a great country. And that when we um, divert from those principles or ignore them or trample, uh, trample over them, um, then that which gives us national power at home and abroad, credibility and integrity uh, as a democracy is compromised. And that's the connection. I think it's important for regular citizens to see and then to exercise their civic opportunity um, to vote accordingly. And as a final question, given what you have just been talking about, are there organizations that are practicing what you are preaching that those of us who want to join other groups to further civic responsibility can join, can partner with, can participate in? I'll tell you a couple that I think are, 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 uh, are great, but remember this, this is, this is very much from my own perspective, what touches my own heart and what I've seen. Um, 
I, I think there is real power and importance in building local grassroots civic organizations. Um, not all of them are political. Many are, are working, you know, in between political cycles on, uh, on how to engage citizens and build community. You know, it could even, it could be the, the helping folks get a turkey at, uh, helping families get a turkey at Thanksgiving. Whatever it is, you know, engaging in, uh, in local community service and, and so forth, that that notion of community, right, that we actually have a stake in each other, that we belong to each other, that we owe um, more than courtesy, but understanding and compassion uh, toward each other and an effort to get to know each other. Those are the kinds of organizations I've been really interested in, uh, in helping to uh, support. So uh, for example, um, there's an organization we worked with um, before and during the uh, special election in Georgia called 1000 Women Strong. And they're expanding beyond uh, Georgia, very much about engaging women, um, many of them rural and poor, um, in relational organizing um, all of the time. And what happens with organizations like that is that they get a whole lot of support on the eve of the election, and then the support disappears and the organizers um, have to let go great people who are, who are trained. Fair, uh, fair fight. Um, Stacey Abrams' uh, organization was very much about uh, being an umbrella organization for these kinds of local um, uh, efforts in uh, uh, in Georgia. We're trying to we're trying to put together. Um, we have launched a C three called um, Bridge Together at uh, at uh, uh, American Bridge Twenty First Century Foundation, which I co chair, which is about raising from funders resources that will enable local grassroots organizations to be to, to have permanent resources, sustained resources, so that they continue to bring people into this notion of civic engagement and taking responsibility for their own civic and political uh, future. I'm sure there are others on the uh, on the Republican side committed similarly, um, but those are a few um, examples that I know of and I and I respect enormously. Thank you again, Governor Patrick. Thank You've you, given Bob. us a lot to think about. Um, and importantly, I think giving us some optimistic hope that despite what things look like now, uh, we may have democracy to kick around for some time to come. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. This has been Seminars at Steamboat. For more information about the seminars, visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. The podcast was produced by Ryan Thompson for KUNC. The music is by Scott Holmes, scottholmesmusic.com. Special thanks to Jenny Lay, the Steamboat Pilot and Today, and Doug Usher for their support. Find information on future seminars at seminarsatsteamboat.org. This is KUNC. KUNC.